This is Medieval Death Trip for Thursday, July 2nd, 2020, episode 82, Concerning Plague Persecutions. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. It's taken a while for me to get this episode put together, uh, the better part of a month, as it turns out. I came across our first text for today when I was looking up plague accounts for our Boccaccio episode way back in March. It was inside the book The Epidemics of the Middle Ages by 19th century German physician and medical historian Justus Friedrich Karl Hecker. As an appendix to his discussion of the Black Death, Hecker attaches records of the arrest and interrogation of Jews at Chillon near Lake Geneva for well poisoning, as preserved in the early 15th century chronicle of Jakob Twinger von Königshofen. The persecution of Jews during the plague, with accusations of well and food poisoning, uh, sometimes alongside the old blood libel charges of ritual child murder and host desecration, is something often discussed in historical reflections on the Black Death. It's certainly a topic worth looking at, but I was hesitant to make an episode centering on this text because it is a profoundly one-sided and prejudiced document. These are the prosecutor's records. It's not just an account of a persecution and a massacre. It is an argument in favor of persecution and massacre. Now, we've run into antisemitism on this show a number of times before, especially surrounding the text The Life and Miracles of William of Norwich, which has given us many episodes, uh, including one of our most downloaded ones, uh, old episode 10, How a Blood Libel Takes Root, which addresses the antisemitism at the heart of that text. But in that narrative, the text itself actually dramatizes the prejudice and hatred of the mob that decided that the body of a child found in the woods must have been murdered by Jews because, per their prejudice, it was inconceivable that anyone else would be capable of murdering a child on Easter. That text actually models scapegoating very clearly. The substitution of prejudice for evidence is plain and not disguised even by an author who is explicit about his own anti-Semitic beliefs. Essentially, I think that text provides its own refutation, at least for reasonable people. The accusation begins so clearly from a set of prejudiced assumptions based on no evidence, uh, and that drives the frenzy of an angry mob stoked by a self-serving demagogue, and the actual local authorities generally reject and resist the accusation. And the handful of alleged witnesses that Thomas of Monmouth produces are profoundly unconvincing, uh, for reasons you can hear me explain more about in episode 10. The account of the poisoning trials of Shion is different, because it centers itself not on the accusations of a finger-pointing crowd or dubious interpretations of physical evidence. What it primarily presents are confessions, confessions elicited under torture. Now, I would hope that reasonable people, most of you, would also recognize that a confession extracted through torture is really no confession at all. But, as much as I might wish that, I've also witnessed our discourse, and not just in America, on torture as an intelligence-gathering tool in the War on Terror, 
Not to mention debates we still have over the value, or lack thereof, of confessions obtained by law enforcement with much less egregious forms of coercion than actual bodily torture. We seem to still struggle with the idea of false confession. Probably, I think, out of a kind of arrogance. Each of us wants to believe that nothing can make me say I committed a horrendous crime when I didn't. And even more so, we'd never falsely implicate our family or friends in such a crime, uh, even under the threat of death. And because, of course, we would never do that, someone else who does must be guilty of something. This is so tied up with the emotional structures of our own self-image, I suspect that's why this belief remains so perniciously persistent, even in the face of copious evidence of torture producing completely false confessions. And, of course, not just torture, but simply the stress and pressure of interrogation without any physical threat. That, too, can cause people to admit to charges they aren't guilty of, uh, or even make up completely fictional crimes that they demonstrably couldn't have done. But even though we see this happen time and again, there remains somehow that resistance to accepting that someone who is truly innocent could confess guilt. This psychology is something torturers themselves rely on, both the psychology of the person being interrogated and also the psychology of the audience, that once a confession is made, regardless of the conditions under which it was made, people will want to believe it, or more accurately, they will be resistant to disbelieving it. At many points in history, uh, even medieval history, the law, less subject to ego threat than mere mortals are, has recognized the problem of torture producing false confessions and has distinguished that such confessions should not have the same value as confessions made freely. Uh, This is actually something you'll see in today's text, where this little legalistic qualifier keeps popping up, that, sure, the prisoner was tortured, but it was only the next day when he wasn't being tortured that he made his confession. What is usually unstated in such a framing is that, undoubtedly, the prisoner was facing another day of torture that confession spared them from. But, beyond just the human prejudice in favor of believing confessions, despite the situation that produced them, there is a set of assumptions, indeed a belief system, an ideology, that the confessions in today's text are wielded to support. And that ideology remains a very real problem. The only negative experience I've had with listeners of this show, so far, knock on wood, was one person who posted a comment on one of the William of Norwich episodes, uh, not actually the blood label one, interestingly, but a different one, accusing me of slandering Christians by not accepting the story of William's murder at face value. Actually, that's only half right, since this commenter mischaracterized my skepticism about the story he in fact accused me of starting with the assumption that Christians must have killed William, which is not what I did or how I argued, though I think that probably gives us some insight into how profoundly binary this person's own thinking is. After getting this comment, I googled around and found what I'm 95% sure uh, was this person's blog, where one of the posts opened with a sentence about how the Jews control the Australian economy. Big surprise. Coincidentally, around the same time, I had a landlord who one day slipped me what looked like a 10th generation photocopy of a pamphlet entitled, What World Famous Men Have Said About the Jews, 
which consisted of nothing but anti-Semitic quotations from historical figures. For years, I basically thought that this kind of conspiratorial anti-Semitism, the belief that Jews are malevolently seeking some kind of world domination, that this was mostly a historical artifact, you know, lingering on beyond the fall of the Nazis, really just among neo-Nazis, uh, a few religious radicals and paranoid conspiracy theorists holed up in basements afraid the Illuminati were trying to track them. Real-world anti-Semitism was just another flavor of conventional racism, a contempt for or fear of difference, but not something yoked to a grand fantastical narrative of secret plans and schemes. If I had done this episode a couple of decades ago, I don't think I would have had any hesitations. I think I would have thought that even open, unrepentant racists, and I saw and heard my share of those growing up in West Tennessee, that even most of them would hear these trial accounts and go, well, I do believe Jews are greedy and selfish, but this well-poisoning stuff is clearly baloney born out of mass hysteria. Alas, I no longer have such confidence. And it's not just that I don't want to present something that a dyed-in-the-wool anti-Semite would take as validation of their beliefs. I'm actually more concerned that someone who doesn't hold any anti-Semitic beliefs might hear this and go, Oh, academics all agree this is untrue? Well, I'm not going to let the establishment tell me what to think. I'm going to take this German account at face value, and then I'll be one of the special people who sees the truth that you don't want me to see. I hope that such a fear is an overreaction. But when we have a culture where flat earth theory is actively gaining adherence, or at least was, there are some signs suggesting it might have plateaued. Um, but even so, if people can be won over to that, how many more might be persuaded to believe in something that plays directly into ancient racial and religious animus and gives one a whole new vector for feeling victimized and assigning blame? And to reinforce this concern, in May, around the time I was considering whether to do this episode at all, the podcast Historical Blindness put out a great episode called In the Footsteps of the Wandering Jew, Anti-Semitic Canards in the Coronavirus Era, uh, which I encourage all of you to check out if you aren't already subscribers to Historical Blindness. That episode connects ancient and medieval tropes of anti-Semitism straight to conspiracy theories spreading today around social media and online forums and even some broadcast media, about COVID-19 and Israel, basically resurrecting the idea of Jews deliberately spreading plague. So there is an argument to be made that surfacing a text like this is irresponsible, that it gives voice to beliefs that aren't just historical artifacts, but which continue to have a dangerous potency. And this text does not contain as clearly its own refutation as the William of Norwich story does. What refutes it is the emptiness of confessions made under torture, which is a principle we can't trust that everyone understands, as we've discussed, and also the absurdity of the poisoning plot, especially when viewed in a larger context, which we'll get to. But we can't trust that absurdity to be obvious either when we have people out there insisting that it's real. I'd love to be able to come in at the end of the text and say, and here's the hard evidence that indisputably proves that these confessions are completely false. But we don't have that kind of absolute evidence. What we have is a number of points that all heighten the implausibility of the alleged schemes, 
but not something that proves its impossibility. And that's all the wiggle room the conspiracy-minded person and the bigot need to affirm their beliefs and their interpretations. So, if you can't definitively shoot their argument down, are you just giving them ammunition? It's a concern. On the other hand, the persecutions of Jews and other minorities and marginalized groups during the plague is a topic we should talk about. And these kinds of trial records are the texts that bring us closest to the thing itself. The chronicle descriptions we have are mostly written at a distance, either of time or of space, and like many of the plague descriptions in the chronicles, they tend to be rather flat statements of the numbers who were killed on such and such a day in such and such a city. This letter from the Castellan of Chion is, in contrast, a detailed narrative, something more akin to what Boccaccio gives us in terms of plague description. So that was the decision I had to make. Time has passed so strangely in these last few months, uh, it's hard to realize it now, but I started working on this episode over a month ago, uh, before the protests for racial justice began in response to the killing of George Floyd. And I think that tipped it for me in terms of choosing to cover this terrible content rather than bury it again. Plus, two realities are that antisemites already have this text in their ammo pile, to return to that metaphor. Uh, in looking up scholarship on this text, my Google search results turned up a number of anti-Semitic and white nationalist websites and PDFs. So they're already using this text, have been for centuries, frankly. I think it is appropriate to make sure the counter-argument is out there, too. The other reality is that this is a show about the Middle Ages. If I insisted on making sure that my audience was 100% inoculated against any toxic ideas that might come up, well, we just wouldn't have a show. But there are still ways to present a text more responsibly, uh, and one thing we're going to do in this episode is not let that text hold the stage alone. We'll hear it, and then we'll hear some other medieval perspectives, including one that gets us about as close as we can to the victims of these persecutions. So, with all that for preface, let's move into the historical introduction for this text. When the plague began to spread out from Italy and into the rest of Europe in the spring of 1348, it was preceded already by rumors of poisoned air, poisoned food, and poisoned water. Some of this took the form of natural explanations, like the ones we had from the physicians of Paris last episode. Miasmas rising from the ocean due to astrological influences, or toxic winds and black snow coming down from the mountains. But other rumors put the poison in human hands. And in whose hands? Well, that actually depends on what region the rumor was moving through. On the Iberian Peninsula, poison was believed to be spread by religious pilgrims and itinerant friars. In other words, poor people from out of town. Evil immigrants trying to destroy us. In France, the typical targets were paupers and beggars who had supposedly been bribed to poison food and water supplies by, quote, enemies of the kingdom of France, end quote. The poor and marginalized in our own country are being stirred to violence by outside influences. Do either of those explanations for a social ill sound at all familiar? In the Rhineland, the principal target of the rumors was another marginalized group, the Jews. There may have been a heightened element of xenophobia that contributed to this, 
because following the expulsion of the Jews from England at the end of the 13th century and from France in the first decade of the 14th century, no doubt Jewish populations in German lands had grown as they took in these refugees from the West. So you have an even greater overlap between the categories of Jews and immigrants. This is also a good place to very briefly point out that the plague persecutions and massacres are part of a longer, ongoing pattern of persecution of Jews in Europe that erupts in mass violence whenever societies are stressed. The 1280s featured a particularly acute rash of blood libel accusations and attacks on Jewish communities. In Germany in particular, just a decade before the Black Death, the mid-1330s, you had revolutionary movements against the throne that spawned roving bands called Judenschlager, or Jew Beaters, who were part of a movement inspired by a nobleman who claimed to have been instructed in a vision from God to attack the Jews. The plague persecutions do not emerge out of nothing as a new or novel event, but fit into a pattern of abuse that found different justifications for its violence at different points in time. So this gives us two factors that help show why the poisoning plot is not believable. One, we see the exact same plot being attributed throughout the epidemic to whatever groups happen to be a source of local tension from region to region. It's a broader legend that gets interpreted and applied according to local prejudice. Local details and people are made to fit into the structure of this larger pre-existing narrative rather than local incidents giving rise to the narrative. Um, it's a story imposed from the top down rather than being revealed from the bottom up, which should definitely make you question its reality. And factor two, for the Rhineland well poisoning trials in particular, we have a centuries-long pattern of accusations against the Jews, with the content of the accusations being whatever inflammatory notion has caught on at each particular moment in time. Cannibalism in one year, well poisoning in another. So the predictable pattern of malicious behavior lies with the accusers, not the accused. Another thing I should make clear is that you do also have Jews being attacked and massacred outside of the Rhineland during the plague and as a reaction to the plague, but these attacks aren't tied to the specific accusation of poisoning that is so central to our first text. These other pogroms tend to be broader in their justifications, uh, such as just believing that God is punishing Christians for letting Jews live in their communities. For example, in Catalonia, you have horrific massacres in several cities, including 300 Jews being killed in Tarrega. Those Jews weren't accused of poisoning anything when they were slaughtered. Christian pilgrims were the ones believed to be spreading the plague through poison in Catalonia. Again, that reinforces the idea that well poisoning was basically a narrative with a life of its own that was customized to fit whatever region it came to. It didn't reflect reality. Reality was interpreted to fit the narrative. And also, uh, attacks on Jews did not require well-poisoning accusations to justify themselves. But, shifting back to the origins of the text we'll be looking at today, as these rumors spread ahead of the plague, and this is also something to note, many of these trials and massacres happened in towns before the plague actually hit them but during the period when anxieties about the plague arriving were at their highest. These people may have been acting out of fear and anxiety, 
but they weren't acting due to trauma from living through the plague, generally speaking. So if someone is trying to find a mitigating factor for massacres, trauma of experiencing the plague isn't going to be one. Anyway, after the rumors circulated in Strasbourg, in August of 1348, the city council sent out letters to the other major cities of the Rhineland asking them to collect evidence that Jews were poisoning food and water supplies. What this meant in practice was that in those cities that complied, and not all did, officers were sent out to round up some Jews, present the accusations to them, and then torture them until they confessed or died. Not surprisingly, this approach produced, quote-unquote, confessions that validated the story the accusers were telling. Our text is the response letter that the Castellan of Chion sent back to Strasbourg in October in answer to that city's request. You might note that the reason given for the arrest of the first prisoner in our text, what's the probable cause? Our record keeper tells us he was arrested and put to torture because he was in the neighborhood. Well, let's go ahead and hear this account. The translation I'm reading comes from Hecker's Epidemics of the Middle Ages, published originally in German in 1832, and here translated by B.G. Babington from an 1859 English edition. Uh, you might be forgiven for wondering just how reliable a 19th century German scholar is going to be on anti-Semitic persecutions, given that country's history. Well, hopefully this statement from Hecker provides sufficient answer. Quote, In times like these, much is indeed said of guilt and innocence, but hatred and revenge bear down all discrimination, and the smallest probability magnifies suspicion into certainty. These bloody scenes which disgraced Europe in the 14th century are a counterpart to a similar mania of the age which was manifested in the persecutions of witches and sorcerers. And, like these, they prove that enthusiasm associated with hatred and leagued with the baser passions may work more powerfully upon whole nations than religion and legal order, nay, that it even knows how to profit by the authority of both, in order the more surely to satiate with blood the sword of long-suppressed revenge. End quote. Hecker also explains why he has included this text as an appendix to his book. He says, quote, An appearance of justice having been given to all later persecutions by these proceedings, they deserve to be recorded as important historical documents. End quote. And here is that document, somewhat abridged, as you'll hear in an embedded note from Hecker. Answer from the Castellan of Chillon to the city of Strasbourg, 
together with a copy of the Inquisition and Confession of several Jews confined in the castle of Shion on suspicion of poisoning. Anno 1348. To the Honorable, the Mayor, Senate, and citizens of the city of Strasbourg, the Castellan of Chillon, Deputy of the Bailiff of Chablais, sendeth greeting with all due submission and respect. Understanding that you desire to be made acquainted with the confession of the Jews and the proofs brought forward against them, I certify by these presents to you and each of you that desires to be informed that they of Bern have had a copy of the Inquisition and confession of the Jews who lately resided in the places specified and who were accused of putting poison into the wells and several other places, as also the most conclusive evidence of the truth of the charge preferred against them. Many Jews were put to the question, others being excused from it because they confessed, and were brought to trial and burnt. Several Christians also, who had poison given them by the Jews for the purpose of destroying the Christians, were put on the wheel and tortured. This burning of the Jews and torturing of the said Christians took place in many parts of the county of Savoy. Fare you well. The confession made on the 15th day of September in the year of our Lord 1348 in the castle of Chillon by the Jews arrested in Neustadt on the charge of poisoning the wells, springs, and many other places, also food, etc., with the design of destroying and extirpating all Christians. 1. Balavignus, a Jewish physician, inhabitant of Tonon, was arrested at Chillon in consequence of being found in the neighborhood. He was put for a short time to the rack, and on being taken down, confessed, after much hesitation, that about ten weeks before, the rabbi Jacob of Toledo, who, because of a citation, had resided at Chambere since Easter, sent him, by a Jewish boy, some poison in the mummy of an egg. It was a powder, sewed up in a thin leathern pouch, accompanied by a letter, commanding him on penalty of excommunication, and by his required obedience to the law, to throw this poison into the larger and more frequented wells of the town of Tonon, to poison those who drew water there. He was further enjoined not to communicate the circumstance to any person whatever under the same penalty. In conformity with this command of the Jewish rabbis and doctors of the law, he, Balavignus, distributed the poison in several places and acknowledged having one evening placed a certain portion under a stone in a spring on the shore at Tonon. He further confessed that the said boy brought various letters of a similar import addressed to others of his nation, and particularly specified some directed severally to Masoyet, Banditon, and Samoleto of Neustadt, to Museo Abramo and Aquetus of Montrance, Jews residing at Tourn in Vevey, to Benetonus and his son at St. Moritz, to Vivianus, Jacobus, Aquetus, and Sonatus, Jews at Aquani. Several letters of a like nature were sent to Abram and Muset, Jews at Mancioli, and the boy told him that he had taken many others to different and distant places, but he did not recollect to whom they were addressed. Alavignus further confessed that, after having put the poison into the spring at Tonon, he had positively forbidden his wife and children to drink the water, but had not fit to assign a reason. He avowed the truth of this statement, and, in the presence of several credible witnesses, swore by his law and the five books of Moses to every item of his deposition. On the day following, Balavignus, voluntarily and without torture, ratified the above confession verbatim before many persons of character, and, of his own accord, acknowledged that, on returning one day from Tours near Vave, he had thrown into a well below Moustruez, namely that of La Conirade, 
a quantity of the poison tied up in a rag, given to him for the purpose by Aquitus of Montrance, an inhabitant of the said tour. That he had acquainted Manciano and his son Delosaz, residents of Neustadt, with the circumstance of his having done so, and advertised them not to drink of the water. He described the color of the poison as being red and black. On the 19th day of September, the above-named Valavignus confessed, without torture, that about three weeks after Whitsuntide, a Jew named Musus told him that he had thrown poison into the well in the custom house of that place, the property of the Borneller family, and that he no longer drank the water of this well, but that of the lake. He further deposed that Musus informed him that he had also laid some of the poison under the stones in the custom house at Chillon. Search was accordingly made in this well, and the poison found. Some of it was given to a Jew by way of trial, and he died in consequence. He also stated that the rabbis had ordered him and other Jews to refrain from drinking the water for nine days after the poison was infused into it, and immediately on having poisoned the waters, he communicated the circumstance to the other Jews. He, Balavignus, confessed that about two months previously, being at Avion, he had some conversation on the subject with a Jew called Jacob, and among other things, asked him whether he had also received writings and poison, and was answered in the affirmative. He then questioned him whether he had obeyed the command, and Jacob replied that he had not, but had given the poison to Savitus, a Jew who had thrown it into the well de More at Avion. Jacob also desired him, Balavignus, to execute the command imposed on him with due caution. He confessed that Aquitus of Montrance had informed him that he had thrown some of the poison into the well above Tours, the water of which he sometimes drank. He confessed that Semelet had told him that he had laid the poison which he had received in a well, which, however, he refused to name to him. Balavignus, as a physician, further deposed that a person infected by such poison coming in contact with another while in a state of perspiration Infection would be the almost inevitable result, as might also happen from the breath of an infected person. This he believed to be correct, and was confirmed in his opinion by the attestation of many experienced physicians. He also declared that none of his community could exculpate themselves from this accusation, as the plot was communicated to all, and that all were guilty of the above charges. Balavignus was conveyed over the lake from Chillon to Clarence to point out the well into which he confessed having thrown the powder. On landing, he was conducted to the spot, and having seen the well, acknowledged that to be the place, saying, This is the well into which I put the poison. The well was examined in his presence, and the linen cloth in which the poison had been wrapped was found in the waste pipe by a notary public named Heinrich Gerhard, in the presence of many persons, and was shown to the said Jew. He acknowledged this to be the linen which had contained the poison, which he described as being of two colors, red and black, but said that he had thrown it into the open well. The linen cloth was taken away and is preserved. Balavignus, in conclusion, attests the truth of all and everything as above related. He believes this poison to contain a portion of the basilisk, because he had heard and felt assured that the above poison could not be prepared without it. 2. Banditono, a Jew of Neustadt, was on the 15th day of September subjected for a short time to the torture. After a long interval, he confessed having cast a quantity of poison about the size of a large nut given him by Moseus, a Jew at Tours, near Vave, into the well of Karate, 
in order to poison those who drank of it. The following day, Banditono voluntarily and without torture attested the truth of the aforesaid deposition, and also confessed that the rabbi Jacob von Pasha, who came from Toledo and had settled at Chambéry, sent him at Piliu by a Jewish servant some poison about the size of a large nut, together with a letter directing him to throw the poison into the wells on pain of excommunication. He had therefore thrown the poison, which was sewn up in a leathern bag, into the well of Circlity de Roque. Further, also, that he saw many other letters in the hands of the servant addressed to different Jews. That he had also seen the said servant deliver one on the outside of the upper gate to Samuelitus the Jew at Neustadt. He stated also that the Jew Massalet had informed him that he had put the poison into the well near the bridge at Vevey. 3. The said Manciono, Jew of Neustadt, was put upon the rack on the 15th day of the same month, but refused to admit the above charge, protesting his entire ignorance of the whole matter. But the day following, he voluntarily and without any torture confessed in the presence of many persons that he came from Manciolo one day in last Whitson week in company with a Jew named Provenzal, and on reaching the well of Chablos Cruez between Viona and Mura, the latter said, You must put some of the poison which I will give you into that well, or woe betide you. He therefore took a portion of the powder about the bigness of a nut and did as he was directed. He believed that the Jews in the neighborhood of Avion had convened a council among themselves relative to this plot before Whitsuntide. He further believed that Balavignus had informed him of his having poisoned the well de la Conirade below Moustruez. He also affirmed his conviction of the culpability of the Jews in this affair, stating that they were fully acquainted with all the particulars and guilty of the alleged crime. On the third day of the October following, Manciono was brought before the commissioners and did not in the least vary from his former deposition or deny having put the poison into the said wells. The above-named Jews, prior to their execution, solemnly swore by their law to the truth of their several depositions and declared that all Jews whatsoever, from seven years old and upwards, could not be exempted from the charge of guilt, as all of them were acquainted with the plot and more or less participators in the crime. A note by Hecker. The seven other examinations scarcely differ from the above except in the names of the accused and afford but little variety. We will, therefore, only add a characteristic passage at the conclusion of this document. The whole speaks for itself. There still remain numerous proofs and accusations against the above-mentioned Jews, also against Jews and Christians in different parts of the county of Savoy who have already received the punishment due to their heinous crime, which, however, I have not at hand and cannot therefore send you. I must add that all the Jews of Neustadt were burnt according to the just sentence of the law. At Augst, I was present when three Christians were flayed on account of being accessory to the plot of poisoning. Very many Christians were arrested for this crime in various places in this country, especially at Avion, Gabin, Chrysilien, and Hochstedt who at last and in their dying moments were brought to confess and acknowledge that they had received the poison from the Jews. Of these Christians, some have been quartered, others flayed and afterwards hanged. Certain commissioners have been appointed by the magistrates to enforce judgment against all the Jews, and I believe that none will escape.
So that was the response of Chillon to Strasbourg's request for evidence. If you want to see the full set of other torture confessions, uh, including the ones that Hecker omits, they can be found translated by Rosemary Horrocks in her 1994 book, The Black Death, from the Manchester Medieval Sources series. We aren't going to go through this account point by point and try to highlight all of its bad assumptions and the way it masks coercive methods in how it presents the discovery of evidence, but a few representative examples are things like how Balavignus doesn't lead the interrogators to the well. They take him to a well and then get him to confirm that that's the one he put poison in. Likewise, the scrap of linen that supposedly contained the poison is not pointed out by Balavignus. This is produced from a part of the well that doesn't even fit Balavignus's story. Uh, it's produced by one of the city officials, and again, presented to Balavignus, who is made to confirm that Yes, that is what the interrogators already allege it to be. The rhetoric of this account tries to invest the prisoners with agency in making their confessions and producing evidence, but it's not that hard to see past this to a broken torture victim passively capitulating to a series of assertions that originate with the interrogators. This account is also a chilling example of the kind of bureaucratic language of death that we see so often in state-sponsored mass murder. It's flat and matter-of-fact in describing appalling things, with perhaps emotion only creeping in at the end with that rather brutal declaration that none will escape. The more conventional bureaucratic version of that would be something like, and we are confident that these matters will be seen through to the appropriate conclusion. In fact, that is a difference the medieval version has from its modern counterparts. There's a bluntness and transparency about what's being done, a lack of embarrassment, which contrasts with, say, Nazi memos concerning the death camps and the orchestration of the final solution, which utilize more doublespeak and jargon to conceal the brutal reality of what's being reported. The Castellan of Chillon omits and insinuates in their representation of these events but perhaps the only euphemism they deploy is the prisoner being, quote, put to the question, which, if it wasn't clear, means being tortured. Uh, and that was barely a euphemism in medieval legalese. It would have been perfectly clear what was meant. Strasbourg received many replies that reported similar actions, though at least one city did not go along. The letter Cologne sent back to Strasbourg contained the following statement, quote, if a massacre of Jews were to be allowed in the major cities, it could lead to the sort of outrages and disturbances which would whip up a popular revolt among the common people. And such revolts have in the past brought cities to misery and desolation. You should make the decision to protect the Jews in your city and keep them safe until the truth is known. It therefore behooves you and us and all the major cities to proceed with prudence and caution in this matter. End quote. We might note that such calls for restraint did not necessarily hinge on moral arguments, but rather on political pragmatism, as we see here, with the reason given for not rounding up and massacring the Jews being not that it would be unjust, but that the violence might spill over to other forms of revolt. This touches on one of the main scholarly questions that is still being debated about these persecutions, which is precisely what drove them. Were they just classic scapegoating, uh, directing social anger and anxiety against a marginalized group or a group that is seen to threaten the religious or racial purity of a community? 
Or was greed and or resentment the driving factor? Jews were famously a primary source of loans in the Middle Ages because of the laws against usury that applied to Christians. And so killing Jewish moneylenders would cancel the debts owed to them and would allow Jewish property to be seized and given over to Christians. And for either of those two motives, there is a further question of what segment of society drove the violence. Was it pressure from below, with the authorities giving in to peasant mobs? Or were the mobs recruited and organized by the nobles and the burghers, the poor wielded as a tool for the agenda of the elite? On all these points, there continues to be argument back and forth. Though, to offer my impressions from the sources I read, uh, I'm largely convinced by the case made by Samuel K. Cohn Jr. in an article from 2007 entitled The Black Death and the Burning of Jews. He argues that financial motives for the attacks have been overemphasized in later scholarship. Uh, after all, in the 14th century, Jews did not have a monopoly on money lending. Christian bankers were growing increasingly powerful and had ways of getting around the technical prohibitions on usury, as we touched on in the little digression about the word interest from last episode. In fact, Jewish lenders were constrained by law to charge less interest than the Christian bankers could. Add to that, while money lending was strongly associated with the Jews, in practice only a small fraction of any given town's Jewish population engaged in it. Furthermore, the Jews who are named in the record sent back to Strasbourg are not moneylenders or tax collectors. They were most often doctors, women, students, cantors, and rabbis. Cohn also provides compelling documentary evidence that the instigators of the accusations and the violence were overwhelmingly elites and not peasant mobs. It does seem that the paranoia and bloodthirstiness was stoked from above, not rising up from the madness of the crowd. This does seem a little counterintuitive, because traditionally the elites, the church and the nobility, especially royal power, were the protectors of the Jews in medieval Christendom. But in the Rhineland, papal authority was comparatively weak, and we see local bishops actively participating in these trials. On the royal side, in 1348, there was a crisis of succession for the throne of the Holy Roman Emperor who presumably would have maintained royal protection for the Jews if actually in power, and the eventually successful claimant, Charles IV, was unable to exert authority until May of 1349. Though, it must be said, even then he did not exactly leap into action. In fact, his first response was to legally validate the seizures of Jewish property that had occurred during the persecutions. On top of this vacuum of power, or really as a symptom of it, you have increasing class tensions in the cities, putting many of them on the brink of lawlessness even without a plague to add further terror to the mix. It's the kind of environment that produces show trials and leads to quasi-authorized riots. Now, that is not to say that there was no effort by the church to protect the Jews. One of the most famous attempts to stem the violence was made by Pope Clement VI, he continued a tradition begun in 1120 by Pope Calixtus II, who issued the first papal bull, Sicut Judeis, so-called after its opening words. This bull was issued in reaction to violence against Jews during the First Crusade, and it asserted papal protection for Jews in Christendom and mandated excommunication for any Christian who harmed them. Several other popes in the following centuries reissued this bull when various persecutions broke out. 
And while the text of the bull goes back to Calixtus, the underlying idea of Christian protection of the Jews, and even the specific phrase, sicut judeis, goes all the way back to Gregory I in the 6th century. So it was a long-standing tradition, though often breached, as the sheer number of times it had to be reasserted demonstrates. And on July 5th of 1348, Clement VI reissued it for the first time himself. Clearly, that wasn't enough, because he issued it again in late September with additional statements directly addressing the poisoning accusations, and then issued it a third time, just days later on October 1st, with yet another revision adding statements about the accusations being motivated by greed rather than truth. Clement's version is sometimes known as the bull Quamvis Perfidiam, from its new opening line. This will be our second text, the October 1st version of the Quamvis Perfidiam, as translated from the Latin, in this case, by me. One challenge with interpreting this document is determining its tone. It is a statement that condemns the violence against Jews and reaffirms the Church's protection of them, but this is bracketed by somewhat problematic qualifiers, which you'll hear. The very first qualifier is a big one. The opening clause is, basically, uh, leaving out a lot of clauses in the middle of the sentence, because that's how Latin syntax works, uh, the opening is, quamvis perfidiam judeorum merito detestimur. That is, although with cause, merito, we may detestor, um, that can be detest, but even though that is where English detest comes from, etymologically, the English word carries a sense of visceral disgust or abhorrence which isn't quite comparable to the Latin. The testor in there is the same as in testimony. It relates to invoking or declaring. To detestor, then, is to invoke against or call down. In classical Latin, it often meant to invoke a deity, to curse someone or denounce someone. I'm going with denounce, uh, something that connotes an official judgment more than an emotional reaction. So, although with cause we may denounce the perfidiam judeorum, here we have the perfidia of the Jews. Again, we have an English derivative of that Latin word, perfidy. I have seen perfidiam translated in other versions of this bull as deceit, as treachery, uh, and I could swear I saw one that said the villainy of the Jews, though I can't find it now, so maybe I'm misremembering. Perfidia is similar to detestor in that it has a general sense and also a legalistic sense. The root there is fides, faith, trust, and the per prefix indicates to turn away from or to turn towards the bad. This is the same per that you have in perdition and pervert and, indeed, persecute. Perfidia, to turn away from faith or trust, can mean dishonesty or trust-breaking. It also can be faithlessness, which is certainly related to a lack of loyalty or a failure to uphold an agreement or a covenant in secular life, but it can also have a religious meaning. In medieval Latin, you see it specifically deployed as a word for heresy, breaking faith with Christ or with Christian orthodoxy. In that sense, it's similar to how warlock, Old English for oathbreaker, comes to mean a devil, and thence one who traffics with devils. Anyway, what modern English word you use to fill in this characterization of the Jews 
has big implications for tone. What negative trait is Clement acknowledging before reasserting the church's protection of the Jews? I've opted for faithlessness. I think it makes sense in the context of Clement's statement. Uh, All those subordinate clauses that I left out between perfidia and de testamor relate to how the Jews have not accepted Christianity despite how clearly, uh, from the medieval Christian point of view, the Old Testament prophets prove the truth of the faith. I think Perfidia describes Clement's view of the relationship of the Jews to God and not their relationship to the Christian populace. It is a spiritual condition, not a moral one, as words like deceit and treachery both connote. Now, I may well be being too generous to Clement. There are plenty of examples of Perfidia in classical and medieval Latin where it is clearly a strongly negative trait, uh, and using it very negatively is not necessarily contradictory to the promise of protection. Uh, We have other chroniclers who express doubt about the truth of the well-poisoning accusations and dispute the justice of the massacres, but who still go on to affirm their own general hatred of Jews. So these are not incompatible attitudes. That said, I think I have a case for choosing the softer option here. But you can judge for yourself. The other bit of somewhat equivocal bracketing of the Pope's statement of support comes at the end of the bull, so we'll talk about that afterwards. So, here it is, the bull of Pope Clement VI, issued the 1st of October, 1348. To the venerable brothers, archbishops, bishops, abbots, and priors, the monastic orders, and anyone else whom this present statement reaches, greetings, etc., Although with cause we may denounce the faithlessness of the Jews, who, persisting in their hard-heartedness, do not care to get to know the words of their own prophets or the mysteries of their writings, or come to acquaintance with Christian faith and salvation, yet, recognizing that, as the aforesaid Jews are, according to the testimony of the prophet Isaiah, the remnant who will be saved, it is proper for humanity for us to foster these same Jews when they invoke our protection and the clemency of Christian piety." Following in the footsteps of our predecessors, the Roman pontiffs of happy memory, Calixtus, Eugenius, Alexander, Clement, Celestine, Innocent, Gregory, Nicholas, Honorius, and Nicholas IV, we command the shield of our protection be bestowed, and, among other things, that no Christian may injure or kill these same Jewish persons without the judgment of the Lord or officials of the land or region in which they reside, nor to take their money or to exact compulsory service from them unless it is that which they themselves were in the habit of doing in bygone days. If anyone dare in any way, knowing the conditions of this statute, to attempt to contravene it, he puts his honor and his office at risk, or may receive the sentence of excommunication unless he seeks to correct his presumption with a suitable penalty, as is more fully laid out in these same letters. Moreover, recently a public rumor or, more correctly, a slander, has reached our hearing, that not a few Christians, blinded by their own greed to have many things from the losses of the Jews, falsely attribute the pestilence which God has inflicted on the Christian populace, driving out their sins, to the use of poison by Jews seduced by the devil. And out of their own rashness, and some seeking their own profit, have impiously killed not a few Jews without respect to age or sex, some of whom possessed a large amount of money. 
And although the same Jews are ready to submit before the judgment of a competent judge over such false charges, despite this, the violence of the Christians themselves has not cooled, but that madness has spread by their own hand. So long as this error is not opposed, it is perceived to be endorsed. If the aforesaid Jews were at all culpable or knowledgeable of such great offenses, sufficient punishment could hardly be devised, and they ought not to be supported for any reason. But we should not accept, therefore, as plausible, the argument that the aforesaid Jews could have occasion to perpetrate so great an offense, because that pestilence, by the secret judgment of God, nonetheless afflicted and afflicts communities nearly everywhere throughout diverse regions of the world, both the Jews themselves and many other nations who have never known cohabitation with those Jews. We command, all of you, by apostolic writing, that every single one of you of whom this has been required, in your churches during the observance of Masses, when people are gathered in that place for divine service, you must warn those subordinate to you, clergy and laity, and clearly enjoin them under pain of excommunication, which you will receive henceforward acting against our authority, not to dare, on their own authority, or more accurately, their own rashness, to arrest, assault, wound, or kill those Jews. But if they have a case against them, whether on this or any other complaints, they can proceed against them before the judgment of competent judges, just as is lawful. By this present statement, we do not take away any power to prosecute this or any other transgressions of the Jews by due judicial procedure. The present statement will have no power after one year. Issued at Avignon on the Calends of October in the seventh year of our pontificate. So, that was Pope Clement's attempt to stop the pogroms. It does seem to have a special kind of resonance in our moment now, particularly his assertion that so long as this error is not opposed, it is perceived to be endorsed. Uh, the Latin word error there, which I've translated as error, can also have in medieval Latin the specific meaning of a miscarriage of justice, which does feel appropriate. Here, from the 14th century, we're hearing the message, staying silent in the face of injustice is to perpetuate injustice. So, it seems cooler heads were prevailing in the papal court at Avignon. Uh, recall that Guy de Chauillac, our plague surgeon from last episode, was physician to this pope at that very court, and he wrote in his plague description that, quote, Many were in doubt about the cause of this great mortality. In some places they thought that the Jews had poisoned the world, and so they killed them. In others that it was the poor deformed, and they drove them out. In others that it was the nobles, and they feared to go abroad, end quote. This contemporary skepticism is a further reason to disbelieve the poisoning accusations. As I mentioned before, we find skepticism also recorded in a few of the German chronicles, though most simply record the trials, when there were trials, and the massacres, and a few embrace the accusations and launch into their own anti-Semitic rants. In fact, one later chronicler even gives us a kind of foreshadowing of Holocaust denial. Johann Latimus, a 16th century chronicler of Frankfurt, refused to believe that the people of Frankfurt had massacred the Jews at all, and claimed that the city's Jewish quarter had been entirely burned, leaving no Jewish inhabitants, merely by an accidental fire, even in the face of locals presenting evidence to him. 
but that came later. Bringing us back to late 1348 and early 1349, the Pope's threat of excommunication didn't mean much to the citizens of Strasbourg and other towns in the region. Strasbourg had been under a papal interdict, a kind of communal excommunication, from 1324 through to 1346 without any undue suffering, so threats of further papal censure carried little weight. And so we see other cities doing what Chion did, often with much less legal ceremony. On January 16th in Basel, without trial or any legal proceedings beyond an order from the city officials, all the Jews in the city were rounded up, put into a house that had been specially constructed on an island or sandbank in the Rhine, and were burned alive and cited. The actual number of people burned is unknown, but we do know that Basel's Jewish community occupied at least 19 houses and had a synagogue. Presumably because these killings didn't stop the plague, in July they then rounded up all the Jews who had converted to Christianity and tortured them on the wheel until they got another round of poisoning confessions. In Strasbourg itself, the mayor resisted calls to arrest and exterminate the Jews, but in February he was deposed in a coup led by the guilds and supported behind the scenes by some of the nobility. Very shortly after the new government took power, led by a member of the Butcher's Guild, they began arresting the Jews. There's no evidence of trial or any formal procedure. The burnings began on the 14th of February, St. Valentine's Day, and continued for six days. As in Basel, they were done by confining the Jews in wooden buildings built for the purpose, this time on the ground of the Jewish cemetery. There they were made to strip and their clothing searched for money as they were put in. Some of the Jews, a few voluntarily and others forcibly, were baptized and converted, thus being spared from the flames, for the time being, and those forcibly converted are described in one chronicle as children and attractive women, picked out by some of the Christian men, presumably to be taken home with them. Some of the condemned Jews escaped from the building as it burned, and these were chased down and killed on the spot by the bystanders. This also gives us a bit more to think about concerning the other bracketing qualification in Clement's bull, which I promised to address earlier, and that is how he ends it by allowing for Jews to be tried and punished if proper judicial procedure is followed and just judgment is given. So that leaves us with the possibility that if the German cities had been at all concerned about the Pope's censure, the courtroom trappings of the Inquisition and execution at Chillon might have technically complied with the bull. Was Clement opening up too large a loophole by keeping his protection conditional? Well, I think what we see in the actions of these other cities shows that it didn't really matter. Even the gestures to the form of law that appear in some of the earlier pogroms are merely that, gestures, a facade. Between 1348 and 1350, persecutions of Jews occurred in roughly half of all European cities. As I said before, only some of these were specifically associated with the charges of well poisoning. Uh, that is a largely German phenomenon during the Black Death. Elsewhere, other groups were persecuted for well poisoning, and Jews were persecuted for other reasons. England stands out as a bit of an exception, but that's because the Jews had been expelled from England by King Edward I in 1290, so there weren't really any Jewish communities there to persecute. This is not a story where you can find a bright side. But 
you can at least find other perspectives on the tragedy. And that is what we will conclude with, our third text. This is a Jewish account of plague persecutions. In this case, the description comes from Spain, so the majority of these are not well-poisoning persecutions. But, as I hope we've seen, the whole well-poisoning narrative is little more than window-dressing on what was broadly the same act of hatred perpetrated across the continent during the Black Death. Now, to clarify one thing, you will hear early in this text a reference to the Jews being accused of bringing the deadly poison into the world, but the poison there is just another word for the plague itself. Uh, so that's about the sinfulness of the Jews bringing God's wrath down on the world, not about dropping toxic powders into fountains. That said, near the end of the text, the account extends to address the treatment of Jews outside of Spain, and here we do get a reference to well-poisoning accusations in Ashkenaz, which in medieval rabbinic literature meant the Rhineland and the Palatinate. If nothing else, this attests to the sheer notoriety of the German poisoning pogroms. The account we'll hear is preserved in the chronicles of Rabbi Joseph HaKohen. He was born in Avignon in 1496 to a family who had lived in Spain, but had been forced to flee to Avignon after the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492. He later moved to Genoa, where he had a medical practice, up until the Jews were expelled from Genoa in 1550. Yet another expulsion relocated him again, but in 1571, he was able to return to Genoa and reestablish himself there, and it is there that he died sometime around 1575. So much like the account from Capgrave's Chronicle that we heard last episode, this is coming from a later historian. Capgrave was writing 100 years after the plague. Joseph Hakoen is writing 200 years after. However, he incorporates into his account the testimony of Rabbi Chaim Galipapa, a resident of Huesca in Aragon, in the northeast part of modern Spain, just south of the middle of the Pyrenees. His information is firsthand, though in the translation I'm using, it's not entirely clear how much of it is verbatim insertion into the chronicle and how much is Joseph Hakoen paraphrasing. Joseph used this same account in another of his works, the Emek Habacha, or The Veil of Tears, but I wasn't able to get my hands on a copy of that in time to do a direct comparison. The version I'll be reading was translated from the Hebrew into English by Christoph Heinrich Friedrich Bialoblotsky in the 1830s. One of Wikipedia's contributors rather bluntly calls this edition of the Chronicles, quote, badly translated. Uh, I don't know what kind of translation errors might be in this little excerpt, uh, but Bialoblotsky's text is what I have at hand to work from, so we'll make the best of it. The place names have been rendered from their Hebrew forms, which in many cases does not lead to a clear identification of the corresponding Spanish name, uh, at least not according to this translator's notes, and I've left them as they are without trying to tie them to the modern places. The year at the start is given in the Hebrew Anno Mundi, uh, the date since the creation of the world, uh, and it does convert to 1348 in AD or CE. And with that, Let's hear the account of the Spanish persecutions of the Jews from the Chronicles of Joseph HaKohen.
And it came to pass, in the year 5108, which is the second year of King Philip, there was a great plague, from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof, and there was no city which was too high for it, as it is written in the book of Emek Rephaim of Rabbi Chaim Galipapa. And there was a great cry from one end of the world unto the other, the like whereof never was. In the city which went out by a thousand, there were but one hundred left, and of that which went out by one hundred, only ten were left at that time. And for one who died or was sick of the Jews, there died and sickened one hundred of the people of the land, and they clothed themselves with jealousy. In those evil days there was no king nor prince, were it not that the Lord was with us, there would not have been left of the Jews in the kingdoms of Aragon and Catalonia, one spared or remaining. And they wickedly accused them with wrong accusations, and said, Because of the wickedness of Jacob was this. They have brought the deadly poison into the world. From them came this great evil upon us. And it came to pass, when they said this horrible thing, that the Jews feared greatly, and afflicted their souls with fasting, and cried unto God. And it was a time of misery, of grief, and of rebuke unto the house of Jacob in that year. And it came to pass on the Sabbath day, at evening, that they arose against them at Barcelona, and killed of them about twenty souls, and laid hands on the prey, and there was none to say, Leave off. While they were fighting, the Lord caused it to thunder and to rain an overwhelming shower and flames of fire, and our adversaries were amazed. The Lord confounded their speech. And the nobles and the great men of the city went and saved the rest from their hand, but did not retain strength to save them from the thunder and rain. For they were many who rose up against them, and said, Let us destroy them from being a nation. The Lord do good unto those that are good, and as for such as turn aside unto their crooked ways, may the Lord lead them forth with the workers of iniquity. Amen. And it came to pass, after some days, they rose up against the Jews of Serbira, and killed about eighteen souls, and laid hands on the prey, and the rest fled for their lives. And they afflicted their souls with fasting, and spread sackcloth and ashes for many. And it came to pass, after three days, that they rose against the Jews on the tenth day of Av, and on the day when they afflicted their souls. And also the inhabitants of Tariga rose up, and slew many among the Jews. And there were more than three hundred souls lost, and they cast them into an empty pit, and laid hands on the prey. And the rest fled secretly for their lives unto the houses of their acquaintance for bribes, until the fury was overpassed. And they were left naked of all that they had, but were not ashamed. Also against the inhabitants of Solsona and Salkona, by reason of our sins, the feller went up, and they of great stature were cut off, the ancient hills were thrown down, and they killed in those two places about three hundred souls. See, O Lord, and behold, and plead their cause. Also in the kingdom of Provence, the Jews drank the cup of astonishment in those days. And when this evil report reached the city of Monson, the Jews became amazed because Israel was shorn, and they proclaimed fasts and girded themselves with sackcloth and prayed unto God. And they strengthened themselves in their streets, in their courts, and in their towers, and the night was unto them for watching, and by day their work was hindered. And they went not out from the streets of the Jews abroad until the men were dead who sought their lives. 
and in Lerida, and in Avishka, and in all the places where the Jews had a wall, they gathered to themselves gates and bars, and withstood for their lives, and set watchmen, until he that sitteth in heaven looked down upon them, and the Lord delivered them. And in Ashkenaz they accused them of casting poison into wells, and they chastened them with rods and with thorns, and burned them with fire. May the Lord avenge the blood of his servants that was shed. Amen. Amen. So, after the end of the primary outbreak of the Black Death in Europe around 1350, the persecutions likewise trailed off. For about 30 years afterwards, the surviving Jews lived in relative peace. Indeed, not only were royal protections reinstated in many kingdoms, some rulers even offered tax incentives to Jews to come back and resettle in their towns. Despite this, many Jewish communities never recovered. We can't really determine what the death toll of the persecutions was. Some chroniclers do give numbers, but many of these fit a convention we've seen before on this show, which is that if a writer just knows that there was a whole lot of people killed or a very large army in the battle, they'll just plug in whatever represents a big number to them, uh, be it 100 or 500 or 10,000. We can't trust that such numbers are measurements or data points. Uh, They really are just a way of saying lots and lots, uh, the human equivalent to the Lapine Hrer for you Watership Down fans out there. Also, uh, raw before and after population figures aren't very helpful because they also include everyone who died from the plague, which was no small amount. But even if we can't specify a hard number of victims— we can certainly see the profound disruption to those communities that came afterward. Three decades later, in the 1380s, another wave of persecutions erupted in Western Europe, though this time well-poisoning and blood libel did not feature as notable elements. Instead, the resentments were tied to a larger revolt against royal authority and tax collectors, with Jews being targeted essentially as a kind of royal property, and with Financial resentments this time playing a much more clearly documented role. Well poisoning doesn't really re-emerge until the 16th century. And again, this was a charge that was sometimes brought against Jews, but by then more commonly landed on accused witches and people associated with hospitals. And that raises one other point of serious debate, which is how to frame these persecutions. Is it fundamentally a narrative of anti-Semitism, where again and again Jews are targeted for violence with whatever excuse is convenient? Or should we look at the persecutions as a kind of social pathology that transcends specific prejudices, that isn't about coming up with different justifications to attack the Jews, but is about a kind of reflex for oppressive violence in response to societal tension that picks its victims opportunistically? Now, Those aren't mutually exclusive possibilities, of course. They can both have truth to them. Uh, And there is also yet another view that is a bit more contrarian, 
uh, which is skeptical of narratives that assume continuity across incidents, uh, assigning the same fundamental cause to different moments of violence across the centuries. This view stresses instead the historical specificity of each incident that has its own discrete causes and consequences. And to this point, there is a danger that the more trans-historical a narrative or explanation becomes, the more reductive it must also be, uh, abstracted and removed from what any given human being was actually doing and thinking in a specific moment. Of course, that's one of the challenges of recording history. It's rooted in facts and specifics, but it has to shape them into a narrative because that is how you invest those facts with meaning. But narrative itself inherently introduces distortion, and negotiating what is an acceptable level of distortion lies at the heart of historical scholarship and is particularly vital for how we talk about and understand things like the persecutions we've looked at in this episode. And we'll have to leave it there for now. I do want to also say here at the end uh, that there is a whole rich body of scholarship on anti-Semitism and its history. It is one of the legacies of the Middle Ages that still haunts us today in markedly medieval ways, uh, and not just on the most radical delusional fringes. And I want to clarify that my little portrait at the start of this episode of my own naive perceptions of anti-Semitism is itself a kind of gross, reductive version of this issue, uh, which is far, far better understood and described and analyzed by people other than myself, and which manifests itself in a much wider variety of forms than those two loose categories I presented. So, if it's something you haven't learned much about, let this episode be a starting point for learning more, and certainly not an end point. <laughs> Please, not that. Uh, and check out that historical blindness episode for another really good starting point. Uh, I've put a link to it in the notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. All right, let's move on to our mystery word for today. Well, it's kind of been the mystery word for the month, given how long the gestation of this episode has been. Anyway, our word is zealous. Z-E-L-U-S. Zealous. This word brings us to the end of the modern English alphabet, uh, but that does not mean we've reached the end of our mystery words. We will continue beyond the alphabet as we know it today, uh, and, well, then, of course, we'll just start over at A, or maybe use some other pattern. Anyway, Z, or Z, is a bit of a tricky letter for the big medieval languages, because it's rather rare. Uh, but I found zealous in my Latin dictionary, and it has a range of meanings from zeal, or the desire to emulate someone, to jealousy, which makes it one of those fun words whose meanings nearly encompass their own opposites. Um, understandable in this case, since that is so often how emotion works, that the same emotional state can break positively or negatively as it becomes more intense, uh, like how passion can be either extreme love or extreme anger. Latin borrows zealous from Greek, zelos, where it primarily meant eager rivalry or emulation, and was only occasionally used to indicate jealousy. Z is not really a natural letter in Latin. While it was used in Etruscan and thus found a place in the early Latin alphabet, most of its uses in classical and later Latin are in borrowings of foreign words, uh, primarily Greek words, where it, of course, represents the sound of the Greek letter zeta, which is also where the name Z comes from, zeta to z to z to z. 
Being a foreign phoneme, uh, or sound, it had a tendency to slide its way over to more native Latin letters, uh, sometimes in quite divergent ways. Z often becomes an S, which is not too surprising. Uh, They are the voiced and unvoiced sounds you get from the same tongue and mouth shape. Uh, That is, you vibrate your vocal cords for one of them, Z, and not for the other, S. Uh, One example, two Greek cities that both start with Zeta become Romanized as Syracuse and Smyrna. The Zeta sound can also become a D, which is not too far of a departure, especially if you're following the ancient Greek pronunciation of Zeta, which is less the English or modern Greek Z, and more of a kind of D-Z or possibly a Z-D sound, depending on whose theories of ancient pronunciation you accept. So either Zeta or Zdeta, something like that. Uh, And into this ambiguity, you get one more Latin substitution, especially in later vulgar Latin, which is Z becoming J. This transition happens by passing through an English Y sound, which, of course, initial I or J in Latin has that sound, as in Judei, the Jews. Anyway, because of this, we end up with words like zygote, yoke, and junction all being etymological cousins. For our word zealous, as the Romance languages develop, this shift has an interesting consequence, which is the emergence of two different words off of the same Latin original, zealous and jealous. In Middle English, the two words were not yet distinct, and the preference seems to be for jealous, with zealous coming into its own really only in the 15th century and later. When it does, zeal and zealous take up the semantic branch linked to rivalry and eagerness and passion, uh, but not in a romantic sense, while jealousy, which interestingly does not have a form geal to correspond with zeal, uh, jealousy takes over the covetous passion meaning, uh, especially in a romantic sense, but with the broader concept of envy too. So zealous and jealous another pair of etymological twins separated at birth. Or separated after a couple of centuries. Anyway, you get the idea. And that, at long last, does it for this episode of Medieval Death Trip. You can find a selection of the most significant sources I relied on for this discussion cited at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. If you have questions or comments, you can also email me there to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Or, for more immediate interaction, you can find me on Twitter, at MDTPodcast. And if you'd like to support the show for as little as $1 a month, you can do so through Patreon. Find us there at patreon.com slash MDTPodcast. I'd like to recognize and thank our newest patrons, Michael, Alex, Nick, Maximilian, EMM, Jean, or maybe Jean, and Dawn or maybe Don, if you're from the Upper Midwest. I'll be back later this month with some hopefully lighter, non-plague-related content. I say lighter. Uh, It may well still involve death and dismemberment, but in a different kind of tone. Uh, Or something. It's a weird situation with this show. Until then, remember Clement's warning. Silence may be perceived as endorsement. Stay safe out there, and thanks for listening.